HudsonRiverRadio.com. Being frank, where the only way to be is frank. Hello, everyone, and good evening. Welcome to Being Frank, where the only way to be is frank. I'm your host, Frank Lobono. Terrific show for you tonight. We'll introduce our guest in just a few moments. Of course, driving the bus tonight, as I like to say, is the man, the myth, the Neil. Neil Richter is in Stony Point in our uh, studios in historic Stony Point. And we'll have a show about that one day because it actually is a stone, historic. Uh, I'm here in South Nyack, warm and cozy, thankfully. A, a, another storm coming in if you're listening, viewing in the Northeast. Uh, so hopefully everybody be home and safe. I always hope for that. Uh, we want to remind you that you can also catch us on Facebook. Uh, I've got it. If you see me looking off because I've got another computer set up there to see if you send us any questions this evening, you can via Facebook. I will try to get to them. It's going to be the first time we try to do that. And that's pretty exciting. It's a little easier to, to do it that way than to get through the phone which we only have one, it's, it's a long story, but it, it's easier to just Facebook message us if you have your questions and we would love to hear from you. Uh, remember, you can also catch us on a number of different uh, podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify even, yes, the dreaded Spotify and, and a few others. And we encourage you to please try to be a subscriber so that you can um, Join us, and, and it's important because we call it intelligent conversation, and we would like you to participate in that, and we're going to have plenty of it for you this evening. Before we get into the, the meat of our show, if you will, and, and, and meet our guest, M-E-A-T and M-E-E-T, how clever I can be, it's astounding, uh, but certainly on a serious note, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention what's happening in the world today. Um, and it's distracting all of us. I was talking with our guest and Neil before, and uh, certainly it occupies all of us. We are all with the people of Ukraine. Um, this unmitigated aggression, it's, fr it's frightening for all of us. And if you're of my age, you remember the whole Cold War and duck and cover and et cetera. And, and this kind of reminds me of that in a, in a very insecure and frightening way. So, uh, Anyway, with that said, uh, we have other agendas to deal with, and, and tonight is, is an excellent one. We're going to talk about education, past, present, and future. Uh, and I promise, once again, we'll, we'll run out of time before we run out of topic. Um, and <clears throat> before I introduce our guest to uh, bring that all in, um, I wanted to give a quote. It's attributed to Frederick Douglass, and interestingly, I, as I usually do, I research it further, and there's really actually no proof that Frederick Douglass, the great uh, civil rights, early civil rights leader, actually said it, but it, it's pertinent and important and relevant to our discussion this evening. And it says, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Uh, and that's a very uh, seminal statement, if you will. What it means is we've got to educate our children. And, and there are right ways and there are wrong ways to do it. And it seems like we're always trying to figure it out as it's an ongoing uh, thing. As a teacher, I realize that. I certainly don't teach the same way I do, uh, do today as I did in the past. And uh, as a student, I'm in my 60s. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they don't teach the same way now as I was taught. And uh, so we need to introduce now our guest, 
really a pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Angela Pack. She's an assistant professor, coordinator, early childhood education, special education, elementary, secondary education, infant, toddler, and CDA at Hudson Community College. Doctor, Dr. Angela, if I might, please welcome to the show. Thank you very much Thank for taking you. the time to talk with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Um, in, in my rather lengthy tease to get to this point, um, I, 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 I have to give some relevance to what, when I was a student, and I'm going to be 67 in April. I'll let everybody know when my birthday is because that's just what I do. But anyway, so you're talking about something 50, 55 years ago, even in terms of when I was educated. And I think the general philosophy of that time might have been the so-called three R's especially for someone like me who went, had, went to a parochial grammar school anyway, eventually going to a public high school where the emphasis was on reading, writing, and of course the arithmetic, play on words there, was, was really emphasized. But in, we, in our preliminary uh, talk to get here, there was also some practical information. We talked about typing, shop class, and things. That seems to have changed. In your mind, what do you think was the crux of education at that time? And what was worth saving, has been, been saved? What was the good? What was the bad? What has changed? And then we'll talk about the present. So please. Um, what is the good and the bad? That's a really interesting question. Um, the good would be that it was child-centered, that we were really thinking about education and we were thinking about how to um, advance students and help them learn. Um, and I think that where we've grown, I don't know if we call it bad, but I look I look at growth. Well, where we've grown is we've really grown and we've um, contemplated how children learn. And we've moved away from the workbooks and, and the tests where you ask children to memorize, like I'm gonna memorize something, I'm gonna shoot it out. And then that's how I know. We've moved way past that. And we really want children to learn. And learning is really different than memorizing. It's being able to take it and to being able to use the information. So we really think about that. We think about how to provide, like how to provide experiences for, um, students to learn hands-on and then to use the information in a meaningful way in their lives. So I think we started with really thinking about when, when I went to school, it was really about getting knowledge, like taking in information and being able to give it back. And so now we really think about it differently. And the other thing we really think about differently is, um, I remember when I went to school, it's like you were smart or you were not right? You were like, you were good at, uh, at memorizing, at writing, at taking tests. And now we really think about um, the whole child and all different kinds of intelligences. And so you really think about how not, how do we honor the students that we have and the gifts that they have and the strengths that they have in the classroom rather than pigeonhole everybody to fit into one box. So I think you change from that idea of we're going to teach 
all students need to be the student we want. Instead, we're going to be the teachers that all these students need. And so I think that's really where we're growing towards and we keep developing and we keep moving towards. As my role as the devil's advocate, if you will. To, sure, go ahead. Um, some people might say, okay, all well and good, but that's, <clears throat> if you will, the trophy for participation mentality, if you will. In other words, is it, are we sacrificing the important base, basics, if you will, of, of, of a solid core of reading well, writing well, speaking well, to be fair, more fair-minded, if you see where, where I'm coming at. Uh, it, it, do we sacrifice, and again, I'm, I'm being provocative to stimulate the conversation, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I think some people might put that forth as an argument. Well, that's all well and good, but are are we really getting then a, a return, if you will, for investment with, with really sharp people who, as I said, speak well, write well, think well? Well, actually, um, we're having students think, we're giving them more opportunities to think, because instead of it just being very rote, we're giving them the opportunity to problem solve and to think. And one of the things that we're moving towards is having students move at their own pace. So you would have a classroom with, if you have a first grade classroom, there could be all learning different um, different levels of math. So we're not holding anybody back and we're giving them much more opportunity to develop as people and to also learn. So we're really thinking about how can we help them reach their potential and not hold back certain students who are, who are, who are further advanced in certain areas and also make sure that we don't leave groups of students behind. So I was talking to some of my college students today and one of them was saying, I'm not very good at math. I can't do math. And I was like, well, why? And she could tell me exactly the class that she lost it with math. I think as she was saying, she never understood prime numbers and the teacher just kept moving and they can, that's what they used to do when we were in school, they would just keep moving on. But the problem is that then that becomes their identity. And then with math, it's foundational and it repeats itself over and over. So that becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that keeps going and going and going. So if you don't understand fractions, when you get to algebra and you put letters with it, then you're not learning. So my point is, it isn't just about pushing the middle forward. It's about making sure that every child has an opportunity to learn where they developmentally are. And if you think about it, when you think about developing, not only if you wanna develop, not only um, academically, but also socially and emotionally, we all know if you can, if you think you can, you will. So if we're really setting up environments for students to be successful, we need to educate them and make sure that they understand. And so really for my student, it was the end of her math career. She has now identified herself as I'm bad at math, I can't do math. And so 
we need to move past that. And we really are working on that. We're working on having students work at all different levels and not labeling with the levels, but having the levels be fluid based on what they need at that certain time. And so I think in that way, we are getting them to think more because we're giving them more opportunity to learn. They're learning at their own pace and we're stimulating them with real life problems and, and we're stimulating them through discussion, through investigation. Like if you do science now, it's not about opening that textbook and looking at the butterflies and the and, and all of that. It's taking butterflies and using microscopes and really investigating them. So I always look at education as two things. One, the knowledge that you get and two, learning how to learn. Right. So you can take all this knowledge in and that's one thing. But do I know how to learn? So like when I was in school, it was all about memorizing. We'd have those history tasks and you'd have to be able to say who died when and all of that. But did I really know how to research? Did I really know how to problem solve? Did I really know how to investigate things? And to me, those things are more valuable because you can always figure out if you know how to learn, you can always figure out who died when or what was the first battle or what happened. It's that I think is really important. So I want to come back to that point too, uh, Angela, in just a moment. I just want to remind everybody watching Being Frank, my, my special guest tonight is Dr. Angela Pack. We're talking education, past, present, and future. Just made a great point. Uh, and two things that I wanted to ask about. Now you're talking about children, a broad range. At what age do you start exposing a child to this style of learning? Right from the beginning? At, at, at five, six, eight, ten? What is considered appropriate for them to be able to handle that, if you will, think for yourself? I guess right from the beginning, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you can, like in preschool, you you design opportunities for students to learn and that are open-ended and that meet all children's needs and as they move on you keep creating these um, experiences and you you do you you teach them for a very young age because if you take all little kindergartners and you say you're all going to read at the same time everybody's not ready at that time uh, it, it, it's a process. And if we rush people, then they can end up feeling frustrated and their self-esteem can go down. And if we hold people back, it can also be frustrating. We hold those little ones back. So it's really about creating these educational environments that are conducive to exactly where they're ready to learn and exactly what they're ready to learn. And so then it becomes like a magical experience because you think about it not being frustrating, but invigorating. You know, we all do and we all like to learn when it's successful. And if you go back and you look at like, I spent a lot of time in classrooms, you look at the children that are the big goofballs. You look at the children that um, don't want to learn. They sometimes they're really struggling. So if we create these, and that's their coping mechanism. So if we create these classrooms where they're conducive to all learners, we won't have students who need to develop their identity in other ways. So we'll really help them all learn. I understand. Now, what about the role of parents? Now, obviously, they must play a role. 
uh, you would hope it would be a positive role. And we'll get into that a little bit where things, it, it, part of the change in education is sometimes the disruptive role that, that parents can play uh, in, 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 in all of this. But what role should they play with uh, encouraging their children to learn? How can they take what you're trying to do in the classroom and accelerate it or, or exacerbate it, if you will, in a good way at home? What can a parent do? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think that one of the things when you think of the educator, it's really important that educators meet parents where they are. So if parents are struggling in some way, it's really important to provide them resources, bring them into the school community and let them know what you're doing at home and then hear what they have to say and bring parents into the community as well. And so a lot of times in schools, we talk about wanting parents involved, but then we have these hidden messages where you can't show up unless you get permission and you can't come in and visit and all of that. So it's really thinking about creating a partnership with them where parents assets are brought into the school and then we also help parents because you know math has really changed and some schools will actually have workshops for math for parents because you know parents need to know right like parents may not understand it or when you have um when you have parents who are ESL and they're learning English, having making sure that the information you send out is in their home language, making sure that you can you have someone that can translate when you have like teacher conferences, having the um, having the teacher learn some some phrases in their language to make them more comfortable, and then also thinking about offering ESL classes and things like that. So you know. I don't think that there's one formula for parents to get involved. I think it's educators job to meet parents where they are and then help them get involved. If that makes sense. It certainly does. Um, we'll take a break in a moment. I want to remind everybody you're watching being Frank. I'm your host, Frank Labono. Neil Richter is up in Stony Point driving the bus and our very special guest is Dr. Angela Pack. We're talking about education past present and future. We'll go for a break in just a few seconds. When we come back, we want to talk about the dreaded CRT, the, uh, the, uh, and what it means, what should it be taught? When should it be taught? Uh, obviously, it, it's, it's a divisive issue. Um, and we need to, I think we need to talk about it. And I need to, to, to uh, pick your brain a little bit about your, your thoughts on the whole thing. Uh, as we it needs to be talked about let's put it that way so we'll go to a break when we come back we'll continue with dr angela pack you're watching being frank don't go away we'll be right back lots more intelligent this is hudsonriverradio.com i'm linda zimmerman join michael warden and me for murder in the hudson valley we'll look into notorious homicide cases from around the region and follow the case from the moment the crime scene is discovered up to the final verdict we'll discuss the suspects evidence forensic techniques and legal battles used to identify and convict the guilty murder in the hudson valley only on hudsonriverradio.com Subscribe to Murder in the Hudson Valley on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi, this is Big Jim Wheeler. You know, I grew up on a farm as a kid, and, well, back in those days, we didn't have much TV to watch. So as a family, we'd sit around the radio, and we'd listen to those old shows. Well, I've become a huge fan of those classic radio shows, and I'm thrilled to share my personal collection of original broadcast recordings with you. Well, we got old Western superheroes, classic stories, oh, we got them all. Check out Hudson River Radio's Classic Radio Theater. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. This is Big Jim Wheeler signing off and hoping you enjoy the show. Subscribe to Classic Radio Theater on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. HudsonRiverRadio.com The dot-com makes it cool. Welcome back, everyone. It's Being Frank. I'm your host, Frank Lovano. Thank you so much for joining us for our intelligent conversation this evening. Neil Richter is up in the studio driving the bus in Stony Point, our very special guest, Dr. Angela Pack, talking about education, past, present, and now the future. Well, we got to start in the present and, and move to the future. And the CRT, the critical race theory, which is uh, also called the 1619. There are a number of different names for it. To me, it sounds like the teaching of what is truly American history, yet there is enormous amount of controversy uh, associated with it. Um, please tell us a little bit about what is it? Uh, is it important? Why is it important? Should it be taught? When should it be taught? Who should it be taught to? Let's start there. <laughs> Okay. So um, critical race theory is really looking at our society through a racial lens and realizing that it's not um, racism, is not individual, it's systemic and it is institutionalized and has been institutionalized since the beginning of our country. And so it's really important that um, to me, it's really important that we do teach this because it honors the experience of marginalized populations. And it also looks at America through a true lens of what really did occur. Um, people are really upset about it because I think that a lot of people, one, don't know what it is. So, um, and two, there are people, like I was reading about people who are just really worried that it's going to take away from white children feeling good about themselves and white children feeling proud about their history. And so um, my thoughts on that are that um, I don't think one has really much to do with the other. Our history has really always been told through through an old white man's lens, right? It, we study a lot about how old white men have contributed to society. And I think it's really important for um, students that we do study what really happened and how racism occurs. And then we also make sure that we study um, that we study people in the people who look like them who have contributed to society. And I how think you, that's really valuable. How would you present that to a child? Now you're an expert in childhood education. You know, that, that's something you could have a discussion with, with a college age student, et cetera. I, I think the concern for people and legitimately so is are young people, are their brains able to 
really wrap around the complexities, if you will, of what we're talking about? I'm sure it has to do with the presentation, but there, there's certainly a challenge associated with that, yes? No, not okay. really, okay. because um, everything is developmentally appropriate. I used to teach four-year-olds, and when I taught four-year-olds, we would talk about things that have happened, like we would talk about Thanksgiving, and we would talk about how the Native American perspective on Thanksgiving. And we would really talk about fairness. So did I give them all the details about like the Trail of Tears and all of that? No, but we really did sit down and we talked about, well, what would you feel like if someone took something away from you? If you had your house and then someone took it away, does that feel fair? And what would you feel like? And we really talked about it through that lens. So mm -hmm. depending on the age is how you do talk about it. But one of the things that's interesting to remember is that children of color experience this on a daily basis. They experience it. Like if you look in New Jersey, um, last weekend you had the 14 year old you had the, did you see that the two kids yes. that were fighting yes the, and then the you had the 14 year old yes, yes to all yeah. to sleep yes mm -hmm. so yes. you have this 14 year old black boy who's handcuffed and you have the other person that's sitting and not and so our kids see that on tv our kids experience that so if we don't talk about it we're not acknowledging their reality and we're we are continuing to just keep the white privilege going so when you don't talk about critical race theory and you don't talk about racism what you're really just trying to do is keep life the way it is and keep the inequities going that we already have and that's that's not teaching but quite frankly dr peck I, I know some teachers are afraid i talked to some people about this and potential appearances and some were, were reluctant to talk about it because they've been threatened even for teaching this for for trying to be safe wearing masks it's it's almost like it's not safe to be a teacher anymore talk about the challenges literally of being a teacher let's face it the ranks are down people don't want to teach anymore and a big part of it is because they're afraid what's that about it absolutely and it really depends on the state that you're in so if you look at texas right now um that he's trying to propose that if professors talk about critical race theory they can lose their tenure and um if you um Governor Patrick was saying that if you charter schools have to, if they want a new charter, they have to agree to never talk about critical race theory. Um, but I think what teachers are is teaching isn't just a job. Teaching is a passion and we become advocates. And so it's our responsibility, yes, to keep our jobs and to follow um, follow our district, but also we need to become advocates. And if you looked at like that website you sent me through Facebook about mm -hmm. badass teachers, right? Like we can advocate in that way. And it's our job, yes, we're maybe afraid, but it's our job to get together and really advocate for what is right and advocate together 
for what we think is important in the classroom and then trying to build it in in small ways you know resistance can be large and resistance can be small so if you're studying something and you have a specific textbook you can take time to pull in um pull in representatives of children of color you can take time to discuss certain things you know we can do resistance in large ways and in small ways as well Great segue into or maybe our final point. I'm just taking a look at the time. We'll start wrapping up a little bit here. Of course, like I told you, we'd run out of time before topics. We could keep going and we will at another time. For a recent incident here uh, in the area that we broadcast from, and again, because we stream, there are others watching from other areas, but two small towns, one a little bit more diverse, Nyack, the town that I live in, okay? In a basketball game against another town, Pearl River, which is largely a white community. That's just the demographics. That's the way it is. And during the course of the game, when some of the African-American kids, the black kids went to the free throw line for Nyack, no, uh, jungle noises, if you will, obviously derogatory noises were being made when the kids uh, were making foul shots, the black kids from Nyack. Of course, it created a, a tremendous outroar on both sides, uh, certainly, uh, Pearl River didn't want to be categorized as a, as a town of racists and they didn't want one incident to define them. Nyack dealt with it, of course, with sympathy, if you will, and understanding for their players. The point ultimately I want to make, how do we make that a teaching moment? How does that not get lost in that, that strict line? Well, I'm a racist, you're a racist, I'm not a racist. How do you make something like that a, a teaching experience in the classroom one of the things that's interesting to think about is like the word racist and it's it's really become um it's such an evil word that you either are or you aren't and people don't want to be obviously but we all grew up in a racist society so what it really is is not about one or the other it's about like I think as myself constantly interrogating as a white woman what I do to make sure that I'm not complicit with our racist society. So really I think that the school needs to do a lot of, you know, a lot of work and a lot of unpacking their privilege and really understanding it. And I'm a proponent for starting it when they're very little, you know, so you never get to that point where that is appropriate but um, kids would think that that's an appropriate choice to make, but there needs to be a lot of work done. And a lot of times we think of multicultural education as something you do in schools with children of color or in places where you have a few children of color, et cetera. But really it's so important for um, for for children, for white children to really understand how our society, they have, um, unearned privilege and how it is inequitable because the only way we can all change is if we all work towards that change. How would you teach that to let's say a seven-year-old and make it understandable to them so that it's not negative? Look, we're not taking away from you. Building up others doesn't necessarily detract from you. I can say that to you as a PhD, I'm a college professor. How do you say that to a six or seven-year-old and so they <laughs> understand it? Um, just like we were talking about before, you need to say it in a way that is not um, 
that is easy for them to understand and speaks in their developmentally appropriate level. So if you sit with a six and seven year old and they're very interested in fairness because they just learned games with rules and all of that, that's the way you go. Right, so what you would talk about with a 16 year old, you would not talk about with a seven year old. So talking to a seven year old about, do you think it's fair? What if someone hurt you this way? You know, that's something I think is really important to do. When I taught, I would bring these dolls to my classroom and I would sit with the doll and I would have the doll tell a story. And then I would talk with the kids about, well, what did you, what did you think? And so you could say something at like, oh, she wouldn't let me play because um, only girls can play this. And then how do you think that feels? And then they would really, at four years old, would have great conversations about that would hurt my feelings. That doesn't, that doesn't feel good. And then we would sit and we would talk about how to advocate because it's one thing to understand, but it's also another to learn to advocate. So my little ones would learn to say things like, you know, you can't say that, or what would you say? And you really start teaching them to see inequities and then to advocate to end them. And you can do that from a very, very young age. My little guys, we would have great conversations that you wouldn't think a four-year-old would have, but they really were willing and to have these conversations and to contemplate it once you put it on their level. Like, do you say racism to a four-year-old? Do you talk right. about fairness? Like you have to make sure that yeah. it's developmentally appropriate and that they feel safe, that everybody feels safe, but also that we are, we are helping them develop into people that are gonna function and gonna make this, we're gonna grow as a society and, make it more equitable and we're going to grow forward instead of keeping the status quo. So if we're always scared to talk about things, all we're really doing is keeping things exactly the same. And we can grow together. Boy, I wish I would have had you as a grammar school teacher. I had nuns who just beat me on a regular basis. Oh, I had wonderful. <laughs> boy, I can diagram, boy, I can diagram a sentence. I'll tell you right now. I got to say, I had wonderful nuns. I got to shout out to my nuns. They were really good. <laughs> maybe one or two. Up maybe I was a little more of a troublemaker, maybe, I guess. <laughs> so my school was all about like peace. A lot of who I am as an educator came from these nuns because they really yeah. believed in like, you have to, you were in your honor. You, they agreed to things. We agreed to things and they were very, uh, good very you. social yeah, justice minded. In, in all in all honesty, it's and I mean it the, the, for the basics that they were adamant about making yeah. sure that you were you had the solid basics of an education. Um, so I'll thank them for that and we'll leave it at that. Yeah. And I want to thank you, Dr. Angela Pack. Absolutely terrific. What a what an interesting yeah. show. I learned so much. Uh, come back again, please. And we'll thank talk you so again. much for having me. I really appreciate it. And if people want to get in touch with you, is there a way to have a website or something, ask you questions, um, follow up on our conversation? Absolutely. Ask you can contact me at APAC at hcc.edu, and I'd love to hear from you. Thanks once again, Dr. Angela Pack. Thank you. Of course, thanks to our listeners, viewers. We got to get them all because sometimes they watch us on Facebook. They listen to us on, on podcasts. Thanks to Neil Richter, who fly, who drives the bus, flies the plane, and <laughs> whatever you want to do. Don't go anywhere yet. Got a little bit more to go. Next week, got another great show for you. 
documentary filmmaker Joe Allen. We want to start talking about his uh, documentary, Two Schools in Hilburn about one of the earliest cases of desegregation right here in Stony Point's backyard, tiny little town that had a huge impact on education and uh, civil rights. As a matter of fact, it was one of the early cases of Thurgood Marshall that brought him into the uh, national spotlight and eventually became the first African-American Supreme Court justice. So Joe Allen will have a lot to say next week. You won't want to miss that show. Of course, at the bottom of the hour, you got Scott and Alex and their program, the Hudson Valley Jam, great local music. Uh, I want to leave you with something from Third World. It's called Try Ja Love. And it's really kind of a prayer. It's a prayer for peace. Someone see it as religious. I'm not particularly so, but if you choose to, you may. It is certainly a plea for peace. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to be with you. I'm Frank Lubono, and hopefully we'll see you next week on Being Frank. Good night.
said, be not afraid For those who believe I will say And if you're thirsty, I will quench you with my love And if you're hungry, I will feed you with my word And all I ask of you is that you love as I do And if you lose your way, I lead you to my love Yeah. 
This is HudsonRiverRadio.com.